Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. I'm Ken from Indiana, and Jeremy is MIA today. Our schedules just didn't quite align this week to be able to record this intro for you, but today we are playing for you an interview we conducted with Andrew Rappaport. That is not a name you're familiar with. I encourage you to get familiar with that name. He is the executive director of the Christian Podcast Community, and if you aren't aware, Do Theology is a member of that community. Uh, there are many great Christian podcasts in that network, and we encourage you to go and check that out. You can go to christianpodcastcommunity.com, and there are many great shows that you can find and listen to for your edification. Andrew is also the founder and president of Striving for Eternity Ministries, and you can find that at strivingforeternity.org. But there's a lot of great Christian resources on that website uh, about discipleship, about apologetics, how to interact with different world religions, a lot of great material that is available there for you. Uh, we had a great interview that we conducted with Mr. Rappaport. We conducted this interview a few months back, and we're excited to play that for you. We talked about discipleship and how to create a culture of disciple-making disciples within a local church. We talked about false teaching, about how to identify and spot false teaching, what markers to look for when finding false teachers. And of course, we talked about theology, about how to interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ who may hold to different theological positions than we do on some second column issues. Uh, so we encourage you to listen to that and, and be edified by what Rappaport has for us in this interview. Encourage you to reach out to us and let us know what you think. If there's anything particularly profound or you really liked or maybe you didn't like about something that was said in this interview, you can email the show at show at dotheology.com. You can send us a tweet at dotheology. And of course, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash dotheology. Well, after the music, I encourage you to enjoy this interview with Andrew Rappaport. Calvinism is much false doctrine as a woman preacher. Well, of course, in fundamentalism, you define everything as a gospel issue. This is a true mark of Christian maturity to discern the difference of issues. I got an idea. Let's not run with anybody who thinks they got another idea. There's a lot of different understandings of what the days are in Genesis 1 and to what degree evolution was part of how God created things. I have disagreements with him in some areas, but those are adiaphora, those are side issues, many important issues. So many Bible doctrines are ruined when we use the wrong words. This is why it's so critical that we use only the King James Bible. You gotta have that right or get out of here. Pray God that I don't take every minor thing and make a major thing out of it. Nothing divides like truth. I respect them as brothers in the Lord, with whom I have some strong differences, but they have a big problem with me. Is there a way that we can work together? I think fundamentally we have to say yes. Christians can disagree and still kick it. Joining us today is the founder and president of Striving for Eternity, a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity. He's the author of What Do We Believe and What Do They Believe and hosts The Rap Report. You can find these and other resources, including Striving for Eternity Academy and the Christian podcast community at strivingforeternity.org. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew Rappaport. Thank you, Jeremy, for having me. Are we going to do theology today? I just want to know. I hope so. <laughs> you were already doing it, brother. 
uh, Striving for Eternity, um, that's a ministry that uh, you started. It seems to have a lot going on. You've got the, the Academy, the Christian podcast community, a variety of resources on the website as well. Uh, when did you launch uh, Striving for Eternity, and how would you sum up what Striving for Eternity is all about? That's not actually an easy question. <laughs> it, it actually, the way we actually started was somewhere around, well, actually in 2005, I think is probably when it, I put the website up just because I figured who'd want to read a book on world religions written by some no-name guy. So I figured I'd just put it on the internet for free. <laughs> mm -hmm. That was my thinking. Um, but then I, I was pastoring at Chinese American Bible Church, and we actually started, we incorporated Striving for Training just because we, we wanted to do an evangelism conference. We needed a way to pay for it. We initially did it through three friends. We funded it, and then we did it through my church, and then we wanted a way to just raise money. So it was originally designed for our thought was just to get money for evangelism conferences. And then when I stepped down from pastoring, I started traveling and speaking. So it became the way that I just, it became a speaking ministry. But the core part of what we do is discipleship. It's always been in everything that I'm doing. And so we started to put together the Striving for Dream Academy, which was more of a way of discipling people, providing materials to disciple people that, as it ended up morphing into doing seminars. So we go into churches and do weekend seminars. And, and this is really where we've kind of made our little niche is that where a lot of ministries focus on the bigger churches with larger audiences, we actually target smaller churches to give them that same big conference feeling that you get when you go to a, a shepherd's conference or something like that, or G3 and you, you get to see everyone, just you get all these speakers and local small churches can't do something like that typically. And so we have monthly supporters who help us go into small churches and do a weekend seminar on, on different topics, how to interpret the Bible, uh, creation science, evangelism, apologetics, some of the same things that we teach in, our, in the academy. And so we started doing that. And part of the, the, what we've noticed is that a lot of people are doing podcasting. And we wanted to, again, with discipleship mind, is create something where we are discipling podcasters to give better quality podcast, but also better content where, you know, we're listening and seeing to how we can help people to improve. So we've, we started the community really as a way of trying to have a new branch of discipling other podcasters to be bigger and better than us. That's the goal. Mm -hmm. And so, which is kind of a strange thing. Everyone thinks they want to be the best. We, we actually could care less if, <laughs> if everyone looks at us as the best, but we want to see everyone else improve. And so I probably, I actually probably spend more time investing into other people's podcasts than my own, <laughs> but and, that's okay. And so striving for eternity didn't start out as a works-based religion then? No, actually <laughs> Colossians uh, 3, 1 and 2, uh, that's really where you're going to see. And we actually, it's, it's a thing that's come up so often that we actually have uh, for the new website we're working on uh, an article that we, we have it out now, but it's why striving for eternity that yeah. explains the because so many people think oh you're striving for eternity no we're not an evangelism ministry we're a discipleship ministry mm -hmm. so if it was an evangelism then maybe that claim would would fit yeah right <laughs> we, we, we do evangelism a lot of it because that's the first step of discipleship right you can't teach them all things christ taught you unless you first know christ so so you have to first get them to to know christ and so we we basically are looking at that the idea behind the name is this. So many people are so focused on the earthly things, these temporal things, 
And so few Christians are really fixated and focused on that, which is eternal, that which lasts forever. And when you have things go on in life, whether it be, you know, finances or whatever, people panic instead of having an eternal perspective. I was actually going to call it eternal perspective until I went to a conference and was introduced to this guy named Randy Alcorn. And he's the president of <laughs> eternal perspectives. And I went, oh, okay, Monday, when I get back, I'm going to have to change the name of that, you know, of what we're going to organize it. As, you well, know? providential. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Leonard Ravenhill when he would say, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Uh, I think of that often. Yeah. And I actually went back because that, that quote is, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to remember now, I think it's Jonathan Edwards that everyone said is that quote. He's the one that gets the, uh, the credit for it. But it was actually someone before him. I just can't remember the name. Wow. But that's, that's the mindset of it is, yeah. you know, I used to work in an addiction recovery center as a counselor. And, you know, I always said that addicts have the best understanding of what the Christian life should be. Because they, they really understand what it means to be fully sold out, to be willing to give anything up for an object, right? So, I mean, I, I talked to guys, I, I remember counseling a guy, had a $12 million company, and he gave up his company, his business, his, his wife, his kids, his home, everything for cocaine. Just, he was so absorbed with that, that... And he, nothing else mattered. He let he just destroyed everything else in his life. Well, okay, we don't need as Christians to destroy everything, but that mindset is what we're trying to get people to understand: is that we should be so fixated on Christ that anything He asks us to do, we do it. Amen. The same way an addict does with when when they want to get that that high, they'll do anything to get the high. We we have actually seen that we can be addicted to, and it's a good thing, and that's Christ. <laughs> you can never get enough. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, thinking in terms of the local church, you're currently carrying quite a bit of load in your local church. You're handling a lot of the teaching ministries there. Uh, how, what's your background in local church leadership? Um, have you ever been a pastor? Um, how, many, how many churches have you been a part of leadership in, and, and what's that experience been like for you? Well, I've, I've taken a lot of different roles. I've been a deacon. I've been a pastor. I've been a preaching pastor. Uh, right now, as, as we, by, at the time we're recording this, I'm in a different state because we're in a Grace Advanced Church, so I'm in the leadership, but we're not pastors yet. So it's, uh, but I'm I'm acting right now as the preaching pastor in the sense uh, I'm doing a lot of the shepherding, I'm doing the bulk of the preaching, the teaching of Wednesday nights and and Friday nights. So right now I'm in this position where I'm doing a lot of that, but because we have to kind of go through Grace Advance. And, um, you know, we're not sure what the reg, what the rules are for me and <laughs> to, to being the preaching pastor, but, uh, I've, I've taken the roles in differently because here's the one thing when I first, and this is the best advice I have ever gotten. And I give to young men who say, as I did to my pastor, I feel like I'm called to ministry. And he just turned to me and said, learn how to sit in a pew first. Amen. I didn't really understand that until I got into ministry and became a pastor and understood what they meant. Because I see so many of these guys, they, they're just, they're natural leaders. And they just get rushed into seminary once they get saved or right out of college. And they get right into church and they've only understood leadership. 
and they've never understood what it means to be a member of a church, someone who sits in a pew. And I think that advice has really been very helpful to me because there's, there is a different mindset. And I understand the mindset of someone sitting in the pew. I understand the mindset of a, of a lay pastor, someone who's, who's serving in the role of a, what people call elders. I don't make a distinction between pastors and elders or bishops. There's only one role. It might have different titles in scripture, but, um, but you know, I've, I've seen it as a lay position where you're trying to guide and, and shepherd a flock, and yet you're carrying a full-time job outside of the church. Uh, and then I've been the, the preaching pastor of a church. So it's, it's, I've kind of had run the gamut in leadership. Um, I've probably been in leadership of churches for the last 25 years, uh, which means I, I got into leadership when I was one. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, the color of your beard has determined that that is a lie. <laughs> I, I like the gray, so I just make it gray. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of stress. See, ministry is stressful. <laughs> well, that's true. No, that's an argument that might hold water. Yeah. <laughs> you, you guys think your, your, your beards there don't have white, but just give it a couple more years of ministry. <laughs> In the... Uh, in those variety of roles that you've had within the local church, um, as you've you know, led people and have uh, discipled people and worked with people uh, in the context of the local church, uh, what, is, what have you learned? What have you grown in, in seeing uh, different aspects of doctrine and theology, different weights of measures and how we understand uh, doctrine and theology in the context of a local church? What have you learned through your time of serving? Well, one thing I've learned, which many people don't understand, is that children of any age can understand theology. Mm-hmm. Most people think, oh, we'll teach children stories, and when they get older, we'll teach them morality in youth group, and then we're going to sit them down in church and expect them to know theology. Well, how would they know it when you never taught it? When I got into the Chinese church when we were pastoring, uh, my wife and I, because when we had gotten in, they already had a retreat, we took the kids from five to, I think it was eight years old or five, no, it was probably five to 10 year olds. And we were teaching them during the retreat and because they already scheduled a, uh, someone to speak. And so we're, okay, we're going to teach the Trinity. People are like, what? You can't teach a five-year-old the Trinity. So what we did was we, we taught them the doctrine of the Trinity over the three-day retreat. On the final day for parents to pick up their kids, every parent got asked the question, Define the Trinity and support it in Scripture. <laughs> when they couldn't do that, I had their children answer it for them. Okay. Out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> Maybe not the best way to introduce yourself as the new pastor. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the reality is everyone ended up realizing if your children can learn it, so can you. And we started teaching theology through the Sunday school it got a time where we could have more interaction. We did it very slowly. No rush in, in doing that because if you don't have a good firm foundation, you're going to have people come in your church that are not going to agree with you. But guess what? If you don't teach theology, the rest of the church is just going to like that person. And you're, you're asking for trouble down the road. Where when you have a solid theology and everyone understands it, guess what happens? Someone comes in that doesn't agree with you with the church's position. And everyone knows it. And you, you don't have some of the, the divides that so many churches end up having. So theology is extremely important to teach at all levels in the church. Um, and a lot of that needs to come through one-on-one discipleship. We, we actually had 
And I, you know, I have books that we go through which teach theology, and they were designed for one-on-one. And that's really what, what I teach through in the, in the academy, the Striving Fraternity Academy you mentioned. It's, it's just teaching through our workbooks that we use as discipleship tools for local churches. And so we, we have used that for years as a way of having, you know, you know, Ken, you and I would get together. If you're new, if you were brand new, you walked in, into the church the first day, we're going to try to pair you up with someone to disciple you. And it's going to be a, a basic, we call it growing grace. It's a, it's a basic, you know, here's what prayer is. Here's what the Bible is. We start with salvation because that's usually what we want to make sure they understand. Um, we end with witnessing so they get the gospel twice just in case. But we go through church membership. We go through trials, things like that. So we go through that. And then after that, by that point, it's, it's about three months They'll usually become a member of the church, and then we would start a theology one. So, so someone could be discipling someone for two, three years, mm-hmm. and going through all of the the doctrines. And by then, you've you within a few years, you have a solid believer typically who understands the scriptures, hand, can handle the scriptures. And when someone comes in the church, you don't have to worry about them influencing your church because your church is already grounded. Amen. Yeah, so you I, have. I couldn't agree more with with the, as far as establishing a theological foundation among lay people. We, I teach through a systematic theology course yearly at our church, and we've gotten our kids uh, going through the New City Catechism, and yeah, yeah, everything you just said, I give a hearty amen to. Didn't mean to cut you off there, Ken. No, that's right. I was just going to ask with uh, w- with that discipleship within the church. You have, you know, people that go through that. You said you mentioned that someone comes in and they're gonna, you're gonna try to get them paired up with someone right away. Who's doing the discipling? Is it the leadership, or is it just other people within the church that have gone through and you're confident in their ability to to lead that? We expect everyone to be making disciples. That's mm-hmm. kind of what Matthew 18, 19, and twenty is saying, right? Yeah, I, I believe we should all be making disciples as we go, and so. I mean, yeah, you're not going to take someone that's been in the church a year or two, you know, and say, oh, here, let's get you start discipling someone. But someone who's gone through all that discipleship, after a few years, they're they're ready to start discipling others. And the reality, most people are going to learn more when they have to disciple someone else. Mm-hmm. There's been more often, I would, I'd disciple someone, go through all the the workbooks that we have. They do fine in it. They fill in the blanks. They understand the stuff. But when you start assigning them someone else to disciple, oh, that's when they really start calling you. Or even just having having them teach like an Answers in Genesis kids Sunday school class or something. I mean, they're going to learn so much that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, we, it, 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 the two churches that I, where I was in the leadership and, and we could do this, because um, some churches they, that I was in leadership, they just wanted to use programs. But we used to write our own Sunday school material, and it required the Sunday school teachers to spend about 10 hours of their own time during the week to prepare for Sunday school. So that immediately limits who's teaching. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we as, as the leadership, only provided them an outline with, with de- some detail to it, but they had to go and do the research. They had to study out the texts of scripture. They had to, to fill in a lot of the, the blanks that we left for them. And then they had to, to give it to us for approval before, well, we had it Wednesday night before the Sunday they, they would speak. They had to have it ready. And so 
we we kind of expected a lot from our teachers. So this is, you know, you mentioned Answer and Genesis. You know, they did that survey, if, if you remember, a few years back. And they had concluded that people start questioning their Christian upbringing, really, because I don't want to say faith because they didn't have faith. But they start questioning it back in before high school. And everyone thinks, like, we need to teach the youth group morality and yeah. You know, the, the argument answered in Genesis said was, oh, we're teaching sto- the Bible as story, and then they go to school and get a, you know, a fairy tale taught as, as fact. But I think, you know, I think there's some of that that is in play, but I think another thing that's in play is who teaches Sunday school to the children? Any warm body that's willing, right? We don't get someone that's like, oh, I really want to study, dig into God's word, and teach it to children. Right? It's just we, we stick whoever's willing into that role, and we change it every week so they don't get burnt out. Yeah, a, a shepherd's heart usually isn't a qualification for a kid's Sunday school teacher. Yeah. No, no. And that's, that's, I think, a bigger problem is you know, the person who's teaching is just doing it saying, well, I'm serving God. I'm taking care of the kids this week. Here, let's play some – we'll do some crafts. We'll play a little game, and we'll, we'll occupy your time. And really, all we are is a glorified babysitter. The majority of Sunday school teachers are not yeah. teaching. It's so true. and so sad. So, I wish I know, had strong opinions, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it doesn't help that you're from the Northeast where everyone's just so meek and mild. Hey, sarcasm is my, my spiritual gift. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 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 a single word. <laughs> oh, man. So... Um, you're, uh, you mentioned the importance of systematic theology, or of teaching theology even to children and, and presenting to them even in, in systematic ways. Um, you mentioned the Trinity. You've written a couple of books that uh, de- uh, uh, discuss that. Uh, what do we believe is kind of a, a, a you know, concise systematic theology of sorts. But then also you have another one. I, Jeremy's got the copy there. What do they believe? Which seeks to, as I understand it, uh, can, um, concisely explain systematic theology of other false religions and help us to try to understand um, what different false religions believe about these various uh, categories of theology. And then also at the time of this recording, uh, you also have an upcoming conference with Justin Peters that's going to be combating false teaching within uh, within Christendom and combating that with scripture. So when it comes to identifying false teaching and false religions as being what they are, being false and being wayward, what are the markers that you look for to identify that this is a false teaching? Well, you know, Jude lays out for us 28 different things to look for. In a How false many verses teaching. are in Jude? <laughs> 19 <laughs> I mean, it might be 20 yeah <laughs> but and and that's actually what i go through in the in that seminar that you referred to it snatched them by the flames what you referred to is we're going to do a home edition so it'll be online and it'll still be up so if people listening now want to go and find it just go to the striving for youtube channel and we'll have that up there the snatch them from the flames seminar but that's a, that's one of the seminars we come into churches and do and but there are things to identify. The, the clearest, there's two things that I tell people, if you just keep these two things, you can almost always spot a false teacher. One, have a clear understanding of the attributes of God. And two, be looking for whether they're praising and focusing on God or self. Because those two areas are going to be where you're going to see 
it, with anything with theology, the first thing you should study when you study theology is the attributes of God, because a right theology is always going to be based in a proper understanding of God's attributes. Simple example. I, I know you guys don't mind if we're taking on difficult issues. You you had some time back when you were dealing with secondary issues, you talked Calvinism, Arminianism. Now, when you start dealing with those things, sometimes you hear people say things that they don't even realize is a problem. Someone will say, well, they read predestination in the Bible, and they don't believe that in God's sovereignty, they're going to take more of an Arminian position, and they're going to say, well, see, what happens is God looks down the tunnel of time, he sees who's going to, be, who's going to choose him, and he elects that person. That's what predestination is. And whenever I hear that, I say, so you're telling me God's not omniscient. He doesn't know who's going to be saved. He has to observe it. Is that what you're telling me? And furthermore, he's also not eternal. He's not outside of time. He had to look through time. Is, is that what you're trying to explain to me? Because what have they just done? They, they've just described something that has a different God when they argue that way. Then they try to backpedal. But this, you see, the, that, that phraseology has worked so well in explaining something that is against what they're really trying to teach. And so they come up with something that what they unknowingly do is create a different God. Mm. And anytime, I don't, I don't care if there's something I'm teaching where I have an attribute of God that's wrong in the teaching, I better change from that because all of our theology is going to be rooted in a, well, what is it? Theology stands for. Oh, right. Study of God. <laughs> so so, if, <laughs> so someone who just heard you say that though, is going to hear some people are going to hear you saying, so Arminians are going to hell. So now how do you how do you take the edge off of off of that retort? Yeah, well, the the let me I could give the counter argument when you have someone who's from the Calvinist side who is going to say that God is going to elect someone and therefore because of that election a person's not going to have a choice that they, they are going to believe. Right? What do you, what do they end up doing? They end up taking away the basically the volition of man. But where do we get that volition from God? So it, it creates a, a deterministic. Now, I would argue that people that hold to both of those extremes are typically on the extremes. The majority of people are really in the middle. The, the reality is when you look at the majority of people, I, I have a, a well-known evangelist friend. Well, he used to be a friend. Now he thinks I'm not saved because I'm too Calvinistic. Um, the irony is, he believes exactly what I believe. I actually went through all five points of Calvin with him without using the labels. He agrees with every one of them, but he has a book out about the heresy of false teachings referring to Calvinism and doesn't realize he's a Calvinist because he doesn't understand the meaning of it, right? That's one of the bigger problems. Uh, the question I would do with someone like that is say, okay, well, what, what do you mean by predestination? What do you think it means in light of God's character on who he is? And so that's where I'm going to work with people. I try to, I try actually to stay away from the labels. I don't say I'm a Calvinist. I don't say I'm Arminian. I, I've gotten away from saying I'm dispensational because too many people think that's just premillennialism. They don't understand that. So I'm a reportian. I believe in reportianism. <laughs> and if you want to know what that is, you have to ask me. <laughs> oh, brother. So there's a there's an important issue that you raise with that, where uh, when it comes to a lot of our secondary 
doctrines. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the chart that we kind of attach to our podcast, and um, it's in it's in our uh, descriptions of all of our episodes. And you how guys kind are of, good dispensationalists. You have lots of charts. That's right. Isn't that a stereotype? Wait, it, you <laughs> it cannot is. be a good dispensationalist without plenty of handy charts. It's just it's just <laughs> all it's all part of it. But in that chart, you know, we got the, the primary, secondary, and tertiary. And one of the themes that we are going to be exploring and, and breaking into some more is the issue of viewing the uh, tertiary and secondary issues through the lens of primary doctrine. And so that we begin to understand and develop our convictions on secondary and that, that third column on the basis of what we are, are seeing and viewing through that first column. And it kind of sounds like uh, what you were just describing is where you have people that may hold to different uh, secondary doctrines that without them even realizing it is actually inconsistent with the primary doctrine that they are holding to. Yeah. I mean, I would, I'd back that up with you, what you're saying to go to just start with the attributes of God to take some of those issues. Some of the ones you've brought up on your previous podcasts, uh, charismatic gifts what's one of the arguments used for charismatic gifts they're they're going to say god is the same yesterday or jesus christ specifically is the same yesterday today and forever out of hebrews they're, they're going to make that argument that's a doctrine or an attribute of god's is immutability but do they really hold to that that see the thing is what does that actually mean that he's the same yesterday today and forever you have to sometimes break that down with people because they want to say in the way he deals with his people but wait a minute, Old Testament Jewish nation of Israel did not speak in tongues. The church did in Pentecost, so something changed. So then was he not the same yesterday? He was just the same today and forever or something? I mean, like, you see, when you work with people, you have to sometimes take steps back mm -hmm. and work through issues like this because a lot of times they don't. They've been taught something. They believe it because this is infallible because they were taught it by a teacher they really like, and they don't question it. Yeah, one of the things I learned in high school, I, I was the um, technology assistant in my, for two hours during the day during my senior year of high school, and it was a small school. I come from rural mid-Missouri, and I would get called down to the elementary side of the school to help with an elementary teacher with her technology problems, and something that I found more often than not is that you just have to check the most basic things of the problem. So like, I remember one time a teacher said, well, our, my computer's not turning on. It's just black. And you turn on the tower and it's, you know, not, I mean, it's running. There's a green light, but nothing's showing up on the screen and you're checking all the connections and everything. And it turns out that the monitor wasn't plugged into the wall. And uh, I imagine when it comes to identifying false religions and things of that nature, you can get so caught up in these big arguments that they have that if you just We'll think about the most basic parts, like Jesus Christ being the same yesterday, today, forever. The very basic uh, piece of that puzzle that, well, they didn't speak in tongues in the Old Testament, so something did change. Uh, you know, we often skip over that basic stuff, and that's probably the most vital, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. You're going to find a lot of the theological differences that we have are usually not in the deep study. It's in basic things. I mean, like I said, with identifying a false teacher, let, let me, for your audience, let me ruin a, probably, unfortunately, a majority of their Sunday worship services right now. <clears throat> Listen to the music 
and the lyrics sung in most churches. I had when I was pastor, I'd sit in the front row. I'd have the the guy that led worship, and every once in a while he was not so smart and would add a new song that he didn't run by me, and he knew often went whether that was a good thing or a bad thing because what I would do is he'd be singing a song and I would point in the air point to me point in the air point to me he knew exactly what this meant is this song about God or me if you think about the majority of songs being sung in churches and you think through them it's all about me you know what false teachers do they are all about them and that's the thing not only do they end up completely ignoring the attributes of God. I mean, you, you get them acting where they're going to teach that they're a little God. And when you get to the far extreme, like word of faith type guys, then what you end up with is you, but ultimately what you'll see with all of them is a selfishness. We, uh, we just got done in our church going through the, the film, if you've seen it, American gospel, the second one, uh, Christ crucified. And we were talking through that. So we'd watch it and then have a, a time of discussion. And I asked everyone, did you see how all of these guys that have left Christianity altogether, that were Christian speakers and, and they got progressive, but what is it they're all saying? Well, they didn't like hell. Why didn't they like hell? Because it wasn't satisfying to me. I mean, Bart Campolo, I think, said it best when he turns and says, he says, the God of the Bible isn't worth my worship. Mm. Well, who's the standard? He is. He, he's like, I don't want to worship a God like that. You, you will one day, your, bow, your knee will bow. But the reality is they set themselves up as the standard. And you'll see this with a false teacher because a false teacher isn't in this for Christ, for God's glory, or for the person he's supposedly teaching. He, he, he is in it for what that person he's teaching can do for him, whether it's status, whether it's fame, whether it's money, whether it's just knowing that, you know, these people will follow you. For some people, unfortunately, there's far too many men in, in behind a pulpit who are there because they like to control other people, okay? But what is it all about? It's about them. And that's a quick way you can identify is this, what this person's teaching practice is this about Christ or me? Well, in that case, or him. If it's about man, if it's about exalting man, your best life now, really? Like the the only time the only person that this is your best life is an unbeliever who's looking forward to hell. But as a Christian that he's saying he's reaching out to. Joel Steen, for those who don't know, <laughs> this is not your best life now. Yeah. This is the worst the life will be for a Christian. It gets better. For Joel Steen, he's right. This is his best life now. Wow. We're just we're just calling him out. That's good. That's what we want to do on this program. So um switching gears to the big logo behind you for those who are watching on video, Christian podcast community. Uh we're a part of the Christian podcast community. It's a big group. It's a group of um, Christian podcasters from all over the map, not just geographically, but even doctrinally to an extent where we've got some diversity of doctrine and theology there. Why do you think the group has been able to grow when there's so much theological diversity within it? 
And where's the line that defines, okay, this diversity is now dangerous. It's no longer a good diversity. So how has it grown? Why has it grown amid the diversity? And where's the line on that? Well, I, th- I think a, a reason that's grown is really because of what we've tried to do is get people who are looking to do something more than just themselves. In not just saying, I want every, every focus on me. Everyone should just be listening to my podcast. But to really promote one another, to help one another, I think that's why it's grown in that sense. But theologically, look, we have, as part of the community, we have a theology podcast called Theology Throwdown, where all the podcasters that are part of the Christian podcast community get together once a month to discuss some theological point for us to disagree. That's the goal. The goal is so we could display for folks, not just teach them theology, but to just to display for people how we could disagree with love and charity. And that seems like a foreign idea for some people, that you could disagree, especially on social media, that you could disagree theologically and still love another person. Um, a good friend of mine, Matt Slick, he's with CARM, Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, and he and I actually get asked to go to conferences so that he and I could debate one another, which seems really weird. But we've debated a number of topics. He's Presbyterian, I'm Baptist. We've debated that. We've he, it, Baptism, he believes in infant baptism. I don't. We've debated that. He believes in the continuation of gifts. I don't. We've debated that. He's he a believes, partial preterist? He is. He, he would be that too. Um, <laughs> Man, how many ways can he be wrong and still be called a brother? I, I know. I'm really wondering that at times. <laughs> But we've, we've debated covenant theology versus dispensationalism. We do, we've done a lot of them. We've done them online. We've done them at conferences. And the reason everyone asks us to do it is because they see how we can have these differences, and yet we, we have a genuine love for one another. And the reason I think that is is because both Matt and I know we're wrong theologically somewhere. I mean, obviously, we both can't be right. And we, we both believe that we are right in our system. And the issue is we, we don't see where we're in error. Now, once, once shown where we're in error, then we should change. But, you know, we're going to approach the scriptures differently with a different hermeneutic, a different way of interpreting scripture. That's what that word means. And because of that, we're going to come to some different conclusions, not on the, on the main issues. We're going to both believe Christ is God. We're both going to understand salvation by faith alone and grace alone through Christ alone. And, and so those, those are the core things that are going to keep us together and recognizing that we're brothers, and, you know, in this case, brothers, but with the community, brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, as you guys know, Colleen from Theology Gals, she's Presbyterian. I've had her on my show to, to discuss the Sabbath have a totally different position than she would on that. Why? Because there is something where we can learn from one another. I may not agree with her, but I at least, my thing is, how did you come to that conclusion? Okay, I can see how you come to that conclusion. I think you're totally wrong, but I see how you come to the conclusion. When we hold so fast, and typically what you find is people that hold so fast to a theology that they're willing to cut everyone else off if you don't believe exactly what they believe, typically, not always, but typically, it's someone who, A, doesn't really understand the theology because they're, they're really holding on to something that they feel like if, they, if this is wrong, their whole faith is shot. But really, a lot of times what it really is is pride. 
Yeah. And what I hear you saying basically is uh, you got to understand the difference between what's primary and secondary so that you can understand healthy diversity from dangerous diversity. And, and all Christians should be able to articulate that. So they should subscribe to podcasts that talk about that. Right. Well, I think it's healthy for them. I mean, they should, they should do theology as much as they can. That's right. Yeah. I mean, every episode. Good. Now look, I'm not saying that those people who don't listen and binge and download every episode of do theology won't go to heaven, but why take the chance? <laughs> oh, brother. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a branding avenue that we haven't explored yet. We might get that on a shirt. So I stole that for, from Erwin Lutzer in case any, but he did it with, with Moody Church. <laughs> now, let, me, let me pull out one area of secondary theology, eschatology, just the concept of eschatology. That doctrine seems to be downplayed now more than it has been in a really long time in the local church, especially, but, um, you know, in, in parachurch organizations, everywhere you see a doctrinal statement, it's never surprising these days to just see an absence of eschatology. Um, it, it maybe what they should have at a minimum is that Jesus will physically return. Uh, but you don't see much more than that. And I would say the majority of doctrinal statements that are out there today. And so just for your opinion on that, what, what do you think eschatology ranks in importance as far as uh, unity goes in a Christian organization? I, th- I think that for me, at least it's, it's one of the areas I probably study the least. <laughs> it really is. I mean, I, it's not that I'm not knowledgeable on it. I mean, I teach it, but I'm more, I want to more focus on attributes of God, the nature of who God is, Christ. That becomes something that's a little bit clearer. I I believe hindsight is, is much better than my foresight. And so, you know, look, on Christ's first coming, there were people who completely missed it. They, They thought they understood and they missed it. And there's there's going to be some areas where in you know when it comes to the the prophecies yet to be fulfilled i think again there's going to be a lot of people who are wrong myself included probably um so i don't hold to it as tightly and that's the big thing that i think people have to realize is when you hold to that so tightly i mean i think you know there are things that people miss the first and second coming they didn't see two of them because when you look at the Old Testament, you see some of these prophecies. I mean, they just overlap. And it'd be easy to miss that. Are there going to be things that we could look back at that time and go, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, how did I miss that? It's so clear. That's because it was hindsight. And so I think that there's – that's why I wouldn't hold so strongly to it for folks. But there is a different thing that's more dangerous, and that is that a lot of ministries and churches – Churches don't want to put it in their doctrinal statement because they're afraid someone who has a different view may not show up. I think that what you have with a lot of ministries is they're afraid to put it in because, quite frankly, they're more interested in their platform. That's not true for all, but those ministries that won't put a, a stat into their statement because they, they don't want to turn people away, I'd have a problem with that because they're looking just for platform. Because there are stigmas and stereotypes that come with certain views of eschatology. <laughs> We're all wearing our dispensational underwear on the outside today, so that's us. So how many times have <laughs> you been 
ask when you say you're dispensational to someone who's not dispensational, how many times have you who you heard? Well, I don't believe in premillennialism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it like every time with all kinds of stuff too. Yeah, and I'd always love it from guys who go, "Well, I grew up dispensational, but I just can't accept premillennialism." Or and I grew up dispensational, but I just hate that Kirk Cameron guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's post-millennial by the way right is now. he really yeah how about that i think he's he, he's at least leaning that way well go watch my heart movies <laughs> my heart wants to be post-millennial my brain just won't let me do it so sorry for <laughs> all the post-millennialists out there but my heart is with well, you see, i i i often say that i'm pro-millennial oh if there's a millennium i'm all for it that's one of the ones that ken missed on that program he mentioned pan-millennial <laughs> You missed pro-millennial, brother. <laughs> yes. I'll have to remember that for next time. Uh, so in your ministry, you've had opportunities to travel all over the world and uh, speak to a variety of different people in a variety of different settings. What has that, those experiences taught you about the, the unity of God's church as you've inter interacted with people from different backgrounds? That's actually, it's a great question because that is the one thing that I always notice. It doesn't matter where I go in the world. Genuine believers have that kindred spirit that we could, you meet someone, it's the first time you start talking and you just, you have a, a love for this person that you just met because you have so much in common. Christ changed both of us. And it's just really neat that when you have someone that you can have that kindred spirit with, it doesn't matter that you speak different languages. You know, you, it's sometimes harder if they don't, if you don't speak any language and you need a translator, but, but there, there are things you can, you, you end up seeing you have in common Christ and what he did in your life. He's done it in many other people. You're not to the Christian. Guess what? You're not unique. <laughs> God changed many people's hearts, <laughs> you know, so stop thinking you're something special. <laughs> but the reality is, is that I go everywhere and I see the, the same joy that I see in genuine Christians in America, I see elsewhere. Interesting thing, and now I'm trying to remember where I heard this, but in North Korea, they have a, a way of identifying Christians. One, they're people filled with joy. Two, they're polite and show care for others. And three, um, three, I forgot. Um, I oh, think three the first two are not sounding like American Christians. I can affirm that. <laughs> well, maybe it is. It's just we're so filled. The, the American church is so filled with false converts. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, could you picture if, if we walked around and people could just be like, man, you are so full of joy. You must be a Christian. I should arrest you now. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, the, you, you asked earlier about the, the, the name Striving Fraternity. It, it came out of the, the Voice of the Martyrs did a look at the Christian church in China. And they were identifying what was the characteristics of Christians in China where there's such persecution. In case you don't know, the, back many years ago, it may still be true today, the average lifespan of the pastorate in China is two years. 
Now, that's not like in America where you're two years in one church and you move to another. No, after two years, you get identified as the pastor and you're either hold off to a work camp or killed. And so who becomes the pastor? It's not the guy with the theological training because they don't have that. It's whoever knows the Bible the best. And so they don't have the rich theological training that you and I have, which is one of the reasons we did our Striving for Training Academy free because it could go into China because we're small enough and it hasn't been cut off. We actually know five pastors that have contacted us that we've been training in China. Amen. That's <laughs> cool. Here's the thing that was, that was said about them. Voice of Martyrs said the number one thing, the number one identity of a Christian in China is eternity. They have eternity on their mind that it, it, with everything else can be taken away from them and they still have the joy because they know where they're spending eternity. I don't know about you guys. Maybe I'm just speaking to myself here, but that hurts. <laughs> I don't know how much that describes me. <laughs> you know, yeah. am I really having that kind of joy all the time? That's tough. Yeah, that's, it's, it's such yeah, an incredible I'm, thing. I'm complaining right now because I'm packing up my house to move so I could be close to my church. And I'm, I complain like almost on a daily basis because I don't have my books. I mean, how pathetic am I? I'm like, well, we weren't going to say anything. I'm up in the, in, the, in the garage and I can't get them. I, I'm preaching through Mark and I, I have all these books. I, I'm like, I, I know right where it should be on my shelf, but it's in a box, 90 boxes. I don't know which one. And I sit and like, I catch myself all the time complaining about that. Now, I'll, t- I'll tell you one thing. If you really want to hurt yourself, I'm going to get myself in trouble now. I'm going to name a name, but in a different way. If you would like to know how much you complain, and how horrible you are for your complaining, I'll tell you what you do. Spend like a day with Justin Peters, like traveling overseas where like you want to complain about the heat or anything. This is a man who has cerebral palsy, who can't walk. Well, he can walk short distances with crutches. But I have, years I've known him. Never once has he complained wait, hold it. No, actually, I complained with, about him, the fact that he doesn't complain so, so much that it always makes me feel bad. So he did complain to me once about his non-complaining. <laughs> uh, wait, you end up realizing how much you complain when you're around him. It's, it's horrible. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you observe the, the unity of God's church, I almost want to take things in a a slightly different direction. Uh, same idea, though, is when you're uh, maybe in, in a, have you ever found yourself in a scenario or a setting where you suddenly realize that there's some significant theological differences here, and now all of a sudden you are in a place where you've either had to correct or oppose something that somebody else in the room was teaching? Yeah, well, someone in a room. Um, yeah, we, I, I was, so <laughs> we're in the Philippines. And we had done a Snatch Them by the Flames, and this was when we were preaching in Cebu. And what I didn't know was that there were three rows, three tables of female pastors that were right there, front row, right side. And we're teaching through things. And they, they heard both Justin and I say some things that must be very uncomfortable for them. And we ended up um, in, when we taught this in Manila, we actually had a woman right in the front row got up and left. We found out she was a, a claim to be a pastor. I got asked a question. This is during the Q&A. And 
I was asked a question <laughs> that just, I'm trying, we're at the end. I'm trying to give Justin more time to speak because he's got more brilliant things to say than me. So, but we're alternating who answers the question. So I'm trying to answer really quick and hand it over to him. So here's the question. Because people who heard and watched the event in Manila, there were people that had also come to Cebu. One person asked the question. So if, if I'm in a church where I have a female pastor, I think it was I'm the female pastor. Um, what you know? What do you do to have male leadership? And if no male step, steps up, what do you do? And so to be really quick, I just said, you know, fire her and close the church, Justin. <laughs> and I just there were three tables of. <gasps> <laughs> and, and so Justin looked at me and I had to then start explaining like <laughs> in more detail my answer, <laughs> you know, but yeah, that was, that was not them saying, but there was clear disagreement there. And I'll put it this way. There's times, I mean, I'll give you a different, for instance, they don't even have to travel. This happened in my own church. We, we had someone who is, he used to be a pastor and he, we were talking about something with Islam, and he made a statement that is 100% true, that in the Quran it teaches you can kill the infidels. What he, what he didn't know was one of the, the members of the church, her husband, uh, was a Muslim. And he was like, no, that's not what it says. Now, had, had that left the way it was, it could, have, it could have been fireworks, right? Because there were strong opinions on both sides. But what I ended up doing in that case is just saying, okay, I turned to the guy that is, uh, was the, the husband of the member, and I said, let me ask you a question. What does the word infidel actually mean? So what am I doing? I'm diffusing that and getting back to what I originally said, right, definitions of things. Because when you look at what the infidel is, he goes, well, it's, it's someone who doesn't uphold Islam. Okay, so if, if an infidel is someone that doesn't uphold Islam, wouldn't that be all of the non-Muslims? <laughs> you know, he kind of saw where I was going, but it was a very different way of handling it. The way I handled the question with the women preachers, in a friendly audience, that's, that might be fine. Um, but in that audience, suddenly it became an issue, and I had to explain that. And that's what, what you end up having to do with that. And there are times where you're going to have that, those differences. Look, when we went to the Philippines, as an example, we actually tried. I asked the, the church that was hosting it, can you reach out to the false teachers? We told them who we're going to na name, who are locals in Manila. And I said, can you try to set up, like, we're going to fly in Wednesday, Thursday night. Can we, have, can we set up a meeting with all these guys? And we want to talk to them about what we're going to teach. Because look, if one of those guys got saved, that can affect a whole congregation. But let's do it close enough to the event that they don't have time to warn everyone to not go. <laughs> right? But, but we actually tried. You know what happened is one of the guys we mentioned, his son, came after Justin on Twitter, referred to he and I as these guys who parachute in to make money, which is really irony coming from a word of faith church. Yeah. But they, they said, you know, they were criticizing us for not going to, you know, this guy said, you know, he, that we did this on his father's birthday and we didn't go to him privately. And I turned and said, um, we did try to go to him privately. He refused. So we could have, we would much prefer to handle it privately, but he chose not to. He chose to handle it, to let us handle it publicly. And by the way, we, we planned this years in advance and had no idea 
when your dad's birthday is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's just part of the gig. When you get into this kind of stuff, you're going to have that contention. Uh, and sometimes it'll be out of left field, huh? So, um, to, to wrap up the conversation, something that we ask at the end of each of our interviews, uh, what encouragement do you have for leaders and lay people in the local church as it pertains to living out their unity in Christ, developing convictions on theological matters, and avoiding foolish controversies about less important doctrines? What encouragement do you have for them? Well, first off, listen to every episode of Do Theology. That, That's that, what everyone keeps saying. I, you know, it's, it's a must. <laughs> it is. It's theology. That That is where we're going to see. Recognizing we don't hold it in a prideful way, but be able to defend it. Be able to understand someone else's position well enough that you can argue their position. Because if you think your position's right, what it t- people typically do is think, my position's right, everyone else is wrong. And the reality is every system is developed right? You, you look at Jehovah's Witnesses, and they have answers for things. Things we think are like glaring, they have an answer for that makes sense to them. Every system is that way. There is no system of theology that has no answers for anything. They always have an answer. They always have a life-saving device. It's just whether it's logically coherent and theologically accurate. So I would say that to encourage people would be first, study at the attributes of God. It's an essential thing to be studying where you're going to talk theology. Recognize the fact that we all have strong positions and we're all wrong somewhere, don't know where. But so we, we need to hold on to the, the primary issues and people should go back and listen to your other episodes where you deal with these things, but deal with the, the primary issues we hold to. And this, this is a brother in Christ. Those secondary issues that are things that are convictions we have. They're not doctrine, they're conviction. We hold strongly to it, but we can disagree. The question there is try to understand how someone comes to their conclusion. And when it's your preference issues, that third level, um, don't be fighting over that at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's okay for someone to, to, uh, to believe different than you. If, if you hear someone that's, that teaches something different than what you believe, and your immediate reaction is to get angry or to want to fight them or to say they're wrong or to cut off relations, you probably have a pride problem that you need to deal with. So my encouragement to that person would be stop studying like theology and start repenting and then get back to the attributes of God. Well, thank you so much. Andrew, for for coming on the show today. And we encourage all of our listeners to check out the resources at strivingforeternity.org and the other podcasts on the Christian Podcast Community Network. We encourage you to avail yourself of those resources. There's some great content on there. And yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview. We encourage you to reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Show at dotheology.com is our email, and you can tweet us at dotheology. Have a great day. Bye.